Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ingrid Cochran, your host. Today's conversation is really going to be focused on how we collectively care for each other. In the past two years, uh, self-care has become a bit of a buzzword, and we have really focused on self-care as kind of the remedy to systemic issues. And I want to um, take some time today, uh, myself and my co-host, Matthew Portell, who is our Director of Communities, to talk with our guest, uh, Candice Valenzuela, who is going to talk about um, how we can change the narrative from self-care to collective care and um, really understand that self-care is not exactly the answer to what we need currently, especially as we're dealing with the collective trauma of 2020 and, and the fallout that has continued since then with the COVID pandemic, our racial reckoning, and then of course, kind of these larger existential issues like climate change. And so um, we're gonna talk with Candace today, and I do wanna take some time to let Matthew Porto introduce himself to our audience. Hey, hey there, I am I am back for yet another episode. I'm so excited, of course, anytime I get to uh, to talk to people. And Ingrid, I think it's interesting that we've we've kind of just scratched the surface of this idea and I think I have uh, expressed a little disdain that I have for this word self-care coming from education where I was told to have self-care and yet the system was designed that I couldn't really take care of myself. But I think our guest today is going to bring a, a lot of knowledge and experience. Candice Rose Venezuela is a parent. She's a pet owner, a friend, a survivor. And I did not, I did not call her this. This is by her own account. She says she's a geek and a nature lover. Uh, she embraces that no professional titles, I love this, will ever reflect all of who she is and her worth. Man, that's powerful. And, and I love that that was in there. She strives to be human before she strives to be a worker. She identifies as Black, Indigenous, queer, and working class allied. She's professionally, she has been working in the crossroads of education, justice, and community healing for 16 years. So she's bringing a wealth a perspective to this conversation. She has an extensive experience in mindfulness, trauma-informed care, anti-oppressive practices, cultural competency, and so much more. And I, I love this. If you're into titles, she's, she's not afraid to share it, but if you're into it, uh, she does have a BA in humanities and a MA uh, in uh, East-West psychology and 200-hour certification in mindful yoga. So if, if you're into that, that is what she is. So Candace, welcome to the show. We are so glad you are here. Thank you so much for that introduction. I appreciate you uplifting my non-professional self because that, that's one way that I self-care, even though we're going to be debunking that today, <laughs> is to present who I am as a whole person. Um, and then, yes, I do have a lot of experience and I'm actually finishing up my uh, gosh, I don't know if this is, this is, I think, my fourth degree um, in uh, counseling psychology. <clears throat> and I'm working already as an intern therapist serving queer and trans clients in the Denver area. Um, and I'm enjoying that work a ton. But my background 
um, before that, to be more specific, is in education. So I did trauma-informed education first as a, um, I was a health educator, a sex educator, and then a classroom teacher for almost a decade. Um, and from that, I moved into training and support. So I've been doing trauma-informed um, professional development, coaching, and training for probably out of those 16, 17 years, about eight of those years. I've been working as a facilitator. And that work um, really just kept deepening over time where I realized, you know, I need to just go ahead and make the full leap into mental health care. Because <laughs> I was sitting in education, but really holding this mental health lens. Um, and so I just officially made the shift over now because I'm centering my work in mental health, but still working in schools and consulting um, with principals, uh, mostly in California, but I've worked with folks around the, the country. Yeah, I feel like uh, people who work in education, they they wear all the hats. Uh, and so, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's definitely something that I've, that's a trend for all of the educators that I've interacted with, that they wear all the hats. And a lot of it is around mental health. Um, how did you, you know, just tell the audience a little bit about how you came into this work. But, and I definitely want to hear, you know, your reaction to your first time learning about the ACEs study. Sure. Yeah. It's always hard to answer that question, I feel like, because there's so many different entry points. Um, but the one that is always, I think, um, a North Star is, is just my own lived experience. You know, I was a black and brown child growing up in um, South Los Angeles in the 90s, right? So um, my family was um, very low income, I would say under working class, like um, poor and underemployed. Um, my family is the result of multiple generations of intergenerational trauma that resulted in lots of fracturing. Um, myself and my siblings ended up in foster care through the loss of both of our parents. Um, and so just having such severe um, adverse experiences as a child really shaped my worldview. And one of the big things that came out of that was this strong desire to like help others, to be a helper and a healer and noticing my own gifts around that. And I have a high sensitivity um, just in my own emotional body and a high acuity. I just noticed that mentally, you know, I was very sharp and was picking up on social trends and things even as a child. And so the combination of kind of like being a gifted child who was also um, under-resourced familially, societally, financially in every way, um, those two things really shaped uh, my development and my thirst for knowledge and like a thirst to want to give back to the world in a way. So I think that's sort of the first juncture. Um, but that process <laughs> brought me into the classroom um, and I, through lots of different ways, I actually started out with community organizing um, and that made a huge impact on my worldview, even though I didn't stay in that field for more than a year. I think that um, those experiences were so pivotal of watching um, black and brown poor people just like me who really didn't have a lot, but were 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 doing everything they could um, to help each other and to uplift our community while they were also struggling themselves. Um, I think that really made a huge imprint on also um, what I think is important in the world and just seeing that like often the people who have the least are often doing the most um, to work the hardest um, to to change um, social 
um, inequalities. And so I, I lived that, I watched it, I was trained by organizers. So then when I went to college and did that whole thing, um, it, I didn't stay in that work, but it was almost like a set of values, you could say, that I really internalized. And for me, that was actually the start of my sense of like collective care was like watching how that was happening in my community and and not something that is like talked about in the mainstream at all, right? Like when we think about poor black and brown communities, especially where I came from, I grew up in Watts in the 90s, like those are all deficit narratives that you're going to hear about that, you know, violence, crime, incarceration, and all that stuff was real. But what doesn't get uplifted is how we the reason why we're still alive and the resilience that I have and that our communities have is how we fight for each other and alongside each other in the midst of these struggles, right? So um, that's like an imprint, I would say, that has carried me through all of my work. And when I finally got into the classroom with this set of values and this strong desire to help, I quickly, almost immediately learned that my helping <laughs> would only be... Um, equivalent to like my ability to work through my own freaking trauma, right? It was not a pretty path at all. Everything about the school system triggered me because those were the same traumas that I had experienced myself. And it was also a very um, isolating and lonely position too, because a lot of the educators working alongside me were middle-class white people and mostly middle-class white women specifically. So the way they articulated the work, the way they articulated the struggles, the way that resources were brought to teachers to support them, none of those things had anything to do with me or my experience. I was very much an outlier. And so um, that experience of being both like really sharp and skilled while also being an outlier and being under-resourced is a theme of really my whole life <laughs> and um, still persists to this day, um, which I think is often for a lot of um, QT, BIPOC, and queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, um, helping professionals is that sometimes, you know, we can be like prominent in the field and doing well, but we're also struggling ourselves and that doesn't often get seen or like held. And so um, that's how I got here. And in terms of the ACEs score, you know, it, it was interesting. It was affirming on one level of like, yeah, we haven't, this hasn't been named in this way, right? That we haven't, you know, and differentiating between like not every ACE is a trauma, not every trauma is an ACE, but that the, that those things together and these types of experiences are what um, have a huge impact on the lifespan and health and quality of life. Like all of that was helpful. And then I know, as y'all know, it was still an awareness of like what's still lacking in that, right? Like when you take the ACEs score, my personal score is an eight out of 10. And that was also really mind blowing to be like, this affirms my lived experience of like, dang, most of the people like when I'm in meetings and in professional environments and quote unquote peer environments, um, that's part of why I feel like an outlier a lot of the time is that a lot of people with that score, the research says four and up, you're going to see these increased impacts. But a lot of folks in sitting at the table with decision making powers don't often have scores of eight, right? Um, so it's it's an interesting way to to be in the world and knowing that like my voice is important. I can't represent all people. It's not my job to do that, but it is an important perspective while at the same time having good boundaries that it's not my job to take all that on, right? So 
hence the bio as well <laughs> being like you know what <laughs> uh, I'm gonna disrupt this wherever I can uh, just be a human is that's not really what I got to be as a kid right I had to over function from a young age and in our and part of the collective care you know bridging into that discussion a little bit that we can do um, on an individual level is I think um, it's do better at um, humanizing one another you know, in spaces and, um, and pushing back on the over-functioning that's often uh, required in our roles. Um, and and, and I, there's a, this is a little tangential, but like there's this, this concept of like role strain um, mm-hmm. where you're um, asked to be in it, a role too much, right? And I think a lot of folks in our, in our, field experience that um, where you're usually come to the helping professions because you're a helper in general. So you're helping people at home. (laughs) You're taking care of your family. You're involved in community projects, right? And then you add on these social factors like you're Black, you're Indigenous, you're queer, you're a woman, right? Um, You're disabled. And then um, that role strain becomes even stronger because there's less resources around that stuff. And so you're doing even more. So we never get to turn off, you know, yeah. that, um, that, that, so it, I'm kind of went around the world there, but with the ACEs um, thing, I, when, when I check those things off, I'm like also painfully aware that it's not recording like social traumas. It's not recording the fullness of like historical trauma, intergenerational, mm-hmm. right? And so even looking at the eight out of 10 that I feel somewhat affirmed by in my struggles and my unique positionality, it's also knowing that that is, is not the whole picture. Or let's say like one of the scores is like, you know, you have a relative that's incarcerated, right? That alone should count for like five, right? Some of these weigh more because that then ties into all these um, historical trauma legacies, right? So, yeah. Yeah, you brought up a lot there and it really does move us into this next question around, you know, shifting this narrative. But, you know, I, I agree when I first um, found out about the ACEs study, I did feel that it was validating in, in some ways because I was, oh yeah, you know, I have an ACE score of four. And, but if I was to add in the things that they don't <laughs> include, my ACE score would be six. So it's, it's definitely like, oh, this is, this is, I feel that this is something that's important, that it's connecting. And, and it was kind of a, a bummer when I, when I read about the things that are associated with, with lo- you know, long-term health, but it was, it was a way for me to name something and that felt like we could um, have more uh, leverage, unfortunately, in a community, uh, in a, a field that typically is really, really into science. And even though our science is um, colonized uh, and is not really telling the whole story and we are very deficit focused with people. And I was like, oh, this is another way to talk about this. So that was that was definitely the case for me as well. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, what is collective care? And then also how is it different from kind of, you know, self-care and how should we be moving as a, as a, a society when it comes to um, this issue, because 
self-care has really become a buzzword, especially in the last two years because of all the things that are going on. Um, and one of the things that's been brought to light in these last two years for everyone, I mean, for some people, we, we already knew the system was a little, uh, well, a lot, <laughs> a lot of issues, but not everybody was there. Not, you know, not everybody was, would say, oh yeah, our system is a mess. But when we hit 2020, everybody's kind of aware that all of our systemic issues are really, you know, you know, the light is being shined on them. And so, you know, there's, there was this real push, oh, we've got to take care of ourselves. We really have to take care of ourselves mentally. Um, and I was um, listening to you talk not too long ago, and I, you did such a great job talking through collective care. So it really helped me to think through, you know, how we need to really, you know, what's the future for this work? And it is around collective care. So um, tell our audience, you know, how do you define collective care? How is it different from self-care? Um, and kind of how do we shift our narrative in, in the way that we understand how we care for ourselves? Yeah, thank you for all of that. Um, I think what I want to just say off the bat is that um, that this is a huge, huge concept. <laughs> so there's no way that I will be able to speak to all of it. Um, and I think in terms of the perspective shift, maybe I'll start there, is that for me, I don't see a divide between self-care or collective care. Um, for me, collective care encompasses self-care. So for me, the, the mindset shift is around what we prioritize and how we understand um, it contextually. So, um, and to me, this, you know, connects back to trauma research, you know, and this also speaks to what you were saying about like how the field is so, um, wants this kind of like scientific narrative to validate. But the truth of the matter is if we just listen to people and listen to our own bodies and listen to survivors, we all, we got it. We already know. Right. But if we need to validate with this certain type of data, right. I feel like the research around trauma, um, the latest research is affirming more and more that we evolve as a species, as social creatures, right? And like just to narrow in on something real specific, like children, right? When children are, are infants are brought into the world, they don't have um, complete nervous systems or brains and that whole process of from the brain to the body, that entire pathway is, is highly sensitive and highly undeveloped. So how do they develop those things? They develop it in relationship. And it's through the relationship with the caregiver that all these different connections in the brain light up, um, that children learn how to self-regulate. Um, how to regulate at all is through co-regulation. So we actually learn co-regulation first, right? Through a loving, supportive caregiver and those things are mirrored to us how we understand what we feel that we feel <laughs> that we even exist all of those things happen in relationship and then all those um you know synapses and everything light up in the brain and if we're lucky and we're privileged and we get everything we need we grow up into these healthy happy individuals who can then self-care so for me in that analogy is everything and this is actually why I love about neuroscience, because the way we learn how to self-care is through collective care, 
right? That's the only way we learn. And even the fact that there's such an emphasis now, like, oh, we need self-care, we need self-care, whereas self-care is actually an indicator. It is more of a symptom than a solution, I would say. Um, before we got on, we talked about the hopelessness that is inherent in that. But I think more so it's saying that we've forgotten how to self-care. And if we've forgotten how to self-care, we got to look at our, what's going on in our environment, right? Collectively, we're not being cared for. And we're losing that generational knowledge of how to even tend to the self, right? And so that's how I see it. It's more, it's more of a symptom. And so I think in the broadest expansion of the world, word, to me, collective care is actually our true state of being. It's who we are. As a species, we developed um, through creating, you know, socially supported um, networks in nature because we're kind of like hairless, not very fierce animals, but we have big brains and we can figure things out and we create safety in numbers. We Just one little human alone in the outback isn't going to go too far. <laughs> but if you pod together, you can work some stuff out, right? And so we have... To me, we have an evolutionary and intergenerational legacy of taking care of each other in small groups in order to survive. And that's how our nervous system developed and how it was reinforced over time that the way we feel safe is by feeling safe with other humans. And our nervous systems are like these antennas to tap in. So I don't think of collective care as some new fangled idea. I think of it as actually a foundation of human um, beingness, if you will, um, that we have to, I think in our day and age, first of all, recognize how far we've come from that and how many, um, and when I say how far we've come, I think, I mean, socially, structurally and having the resources to support it. As human bodies, our human bodies haven't had time to evolve to these isolated structures. So we're still living in these bodies that like deeply need collective connection and care in every way and shape and form. But then our society through colonization, industrialization and these various technological movements has um, moved us really far away from it. And there's a set of ideals that came about through like enlightenment and colonization and I'll save all that, but set of ideals that really privilege like individualism in this certain um, definition of it, right? Um, that's been forced on the world. And to this day, mentally, I feel like there's in our society, there's a cultural paradigm where we just take it for granted. Like you're supposed to, you know, go out, get a job, do your own thing, exist in this sort of like fake individual. I call it fake because it's not real. The fact that We've never, ever not been connected to everything that ever is. And now I'm leaning on like my indigenous beliefs and my indigenous um, psychology here, because that's a compass for me in terms of like, how do I make meaning and have a set of values um, that are more aligned with what I believe we really need as humans and what we really need to save ourselves on this planet. Because I think of it, climate change to me is not, it's more than an existential crisis. It's, it's a crisis of everything. 
it's a really a crisis of values of it touches everything. And as time goes on, we're going to be less and less able to turn away from it. And the truth of the matter is that we don't need to save the earth. The earth's time span is over billions of years. We'll be long dead and gone. And the earth will breathe a sigh of relief <laughs> and repair itself in however many millions of years. Um, but we, on the other hand, we might be one of these extinction events right that we've brought on ourselves so i i i think that this notion of like remembering how to care for the collective um and has a lot of layers um and to me it boils down to can we do we love ourselves enough um to do what it takes to save our own selves and allow our generations the possibility to still be here and to recognize that you know this trend of the past, you know, this trend of like colonization, industrialization and so forth is a lot um, newer to the Earth's timeline, right? Last, you know, 500 years since or so since colonization began, 200-ish if you want to think about like some really critical technological advances. Um, and we haven't had time to catch up to it and a lot of harm has happened. And are we gonna ever look in the mirror and say, this shit ain't working, it's not working. And then what do we need to do? Um, so I think of it more as a remembering, remember who we are, first of all, as members of this planet and members of many species that belong here. And then remember how to be a part of things. And I know we're at the break, so I'll stop there. No, thank you. Um, I think so much of what you're saying is it is very connected to kind of um, it's it's very connected, obviously, to colonization. Um, but even when you said, you know, do we love ourselves enough to to kind of reverse this where we've gotten ourselves to? And, um, and that is critical because that also comes down to the individual level. As individuals, we are all struggling with mental health issues and depression and anxiety. And, and it is a question of love and how we got to the point where, you know, how did we learn to love? And that goes back to that, that um, co-regulation that starts when we're, when we're very small. And, and so for me, that very much connects because that attachment stage, those first two years of life, where so much of the brain and nervous system develops, um, and how our society has been disconnected, and how we support young mothers and young families, and our capitalist system has um, put profits over people, and um, you know, even kind of the discussions that we had during the first year of COVID in 2020 when um, it was obvious that the um, disease was impacting our elders more than other groups. And then there was a discussion of, you know, you, you know, you should be sacrificing yourself to our economy kind of. And this was really conversations that people were having on the news in a, in a real way. And it's very, um, it is not about love. It, it is not you know, to think through how we could ask people to sacrifice themselves to keep our economy going. Um, it's, yeah, there's a lot there. So I think this is a perfect time to coat the break and we will 
be back to have more of the discussion about how we shift our mindset and think about our collective care or basically remember who we are. That's really, <laughs> that's really what we're saying, who we are as a species. So we'll be back <laughs> after the break. <laughs> Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back. Thank you for joining us. Um, Before the break, we were talking with Candace Venezuela really about um, how we are Uh, need to shift um, our perspective when it comes to how we care for each other, how we care for ourselves. Uh, And that um, we have really been really pushing self-care, self-care, self-care. And so the question is, you know, is self-care the answer? And so before the break, we were talking about, you know, the ways in which human beings have kind of strayed from um, the way that we should be working. And it made me think about um, Dr. Sandy Bloom when we had an episode with her and she said that all of our systems should be focused on the human body or biocracy. Um, but it, it definitely made me think about how, you know, um, how correct you are, Candace, and how we really have strayed from um, the things that we know are tried and true. And so much of that is really about colonization, especially when it comes to 
uh, how we have, and when I say we, I'm talking about kind of Western civilization has really pushed for uh, a disconnect from indigenous ways and indigenous beliefs. So as we go through a process of land theft and um, colonization, we are also um, going through a, a process, an intentional process of ensuring that um, Africans and uh, indigenous peoples are disconnected from their traditional ways, their language, um, something that had already happened in, in Europe. And so it, it is a disconnect from just kind of our way of being. And so I did want to kind of jump back into the conversation that we were having before um, and so that we can continue to talk about this kind of shift in narrative and kind of what are, what are the solutions? Where do we need to go from here? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing in the um, colonization as a specific historical juncture um, and um, the legacy of repression and oppression of indigenous people um, around the world, not just here. When I, um, I think when we say indigenous in the North American context, we think of um, North American uh, Native Americans, but we actually see this all over the world. Um, that indigenous people are who are who have who are people. The definition of indigenous is um, the group of people who lived the longest um, and evolved in conjunction with an ecological system um, in their in their in their land, right? So you're talking about hyper-local people who've been living in one location over tens of thousands of years. We're not talking about moving a couple generations. Um, and and there is a deep knowingness um, that it, that goes with being um, indigenous and growing and being a part of a culture that still remembers. Um, what it means to um, live in collective, to practice collective care, and to live um, in an interdependent, healthy relationship um, with the land that you're on. And that, and I, I'm glad we're bringing that up because I don't want the listeners to, uh, you know, think that I'm bringing some newfangled ideas or in, or solely resting on um, Western science. I'm using neuroscience as um, a metaphor for what indigenous people um, ha have known for many, many generations and that, and, and that some of us, all of us at some point in our um, history of people um, are going to be able to trace back to an indigenous ancestry of the land where our people um, came from. All of us actually have that. Um, but in today's society, when we use that word indigenous, we're talking about people who are closer, you know, one to two generations of still living in that manner. And so I want to give credit where credit is due. That is how I have learned. Um, I have, you know, my father is um, an indigenous Mexican man. My mother is an African descent um, woman who's, you know, ancestors or indigenous ancestors were, were captive, um, captured and brought to North America. Um, and, um, and my deepest healing and learning around trauma has incurred in community context with both community, black and brown community organizers and indigenous elders. And so I use neuroscience because that's the language, but actually my learning and my wisdom comes from my communities and my peoples and my ancestors. And it's indigenous elders who have taught me this language of 
actually what we need to do is a remembering, remembering who we are and how to be who we are. But before the break, Candace, you said so much, and I feel like I could have like about 50 t-shirts printed just on the quotes <laughs> that you said to wear around the world. Because when you said colonization and industrialization, um, it's not the way that we are supposed to exist. And I, I immediately started thinking about that collective care and connectivity of community, going back to when I worked in the office of English learners uh, here in Nashville and could see firsthand the power of what you just said with uh, multiple communities. It wasn't just one community. Uh, it served predominantly refugees who had no formal schooling. And so it was an amazing little community school of kids from all over the world. But what I learned about these communities, whether they were Somalian, whether they were from the Congo, uh, Congo, whether they were from the Middle East, it didn't matter. What, what I was learning is these refugee communities were coming in with this exact idea that you just said of collective care. They only had support for six months. They actually, most of the communities would pull their money for that six months. They would buy one car mm -hmm. and then they would support one person to learn how to drive, right? Mm -hmm. they, were form they were conforming to our culture, but through those ways that you just said that, that we have gone so far from in, in the Western culture. And I think that is so, it, it blew my mind because yeah. I thought, why can't we be more, I have, I'm an anthropology minor. I have anthropology background. So I always would think, why can't we be more like them? Like, why are we not doing more like them when it was round collective? And so that just reinforced that, that it's, it is a cultural perspective of the, of the Western culture that is new. This isn't, this isn't ancient. This is a new concept. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not working. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't knock anybody want to try something new, but you need to recognize at some point, yo shit ain't working. <laughs> yes. It's not working. Okay. You got every freaking illness and, and dis-ease under the sun. Millions of children and families dying and separated every single day because of Western progress, right? So I think, um, I'm, you know, that's a whole, I could go on forever about that. But um, that's where I fault um, our leaders, our so-called leaders, and, um, and the society as a whole is the failure to recognize um, that every sign says, go back, right? Um, and so, you know, if I was to diagnose it, I honestly don't think that we need to diagnose individuals. I think we need to diagnose our society, um, this particular brand of what we're calling, you know, Western civilization. You can dial it down even more, right? Heterocapitalist patriarchy and keep going that way. Um, white supremacy, um, and I think that the way I view it in the trauma lens is that um, our leaders have um, a deeply rooted um, trauma passed down through multiple generations that results in a sort of a malignant narcissism, if you will, um, that, is, that per perpetuates um, the, what we're seeing across the globe. And um, and in, in almost an addiction, I think, 
to these values and addiction that it has to be me, that I have to win. It can't be we because I got to win. I got to win at your expense. I got to be right. There's all of that at the individual level, all the way up to the top of the, to the point where I think it's even getting farcical, right? And we saw this through through COVID, the pandemic of the denial that can be there and the lack of skill. And I think it's um, it's reach, reaching a crescendo where some of us are going to be able to say, this is a reckoning and we need to step back and turn back time. But unfortunately, I think that we're also going to see people dig in deeper and the way that they resolve their cognitive dissonance between this is what I believe in, this is what I've been taught and to believe is right, but the evidence speaks contrary it's not working we're sick we're not well we're mentally unwell we're killing children children are going to schools and shooting up other children there is no other sicker symptom right there's no other right but but because of that generational lack of skill and trauma that we have around being um people are creating false narratives and then there's a deepening of lies. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot. Like you're talking about Ingrid on the, um, on the news and saying, why don't you just sacrifice yourself? And that is, it's, it's sickening and it's terrifying because if the society says that the elders must die so that this technological, whatever it is can go on, the elders are the ones that hold the knowledge. Right? The elders are the knowledge keepers in the indigenous way. So then we're, we're digging that hole even deeper. And so, yeah, but I know we want to turn towards like potential ways forward. Yeah. And I mean, I think we, we tend to do that right on this podcast is we want to identify and name and call out and dissect what we know are these the system, and I've said it before, the broken system, and I love that I was corrected. No, it's actually not broken. It's operating exactly how it should, right? Like, we love to point that out, but we also want to say, okay, so what is next? What What is the next step for us as, as a collective, right? As a, what I would say, the PACES movement as an example, what is next for this work around shifting this ideal of individualism to getting back to this idea of collective Mm-hmm. And, and working through this idea of collective care. Yeah, um, because it's huge. I think I want to break it into two segments. Um, one would be, you know, looking back and one would be like, what can we do now? I think uh, we want to be present focused, but the problem is that we're going to keep running into, I think, is that as long as people don't know their history and don't know who they are, and this is this is very much the indigenous question or the indigenous mind that says know who you are that is what is key know who you are um and and not in the western sense of like who am i as an individual and here's all the degrees i have and da 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 no know who you are is who do you belong to who and what do you belong to right um and you're accountable to and so on um so i think in terms of looking back I honestly think that um, we're going to keep seeing a lot of these same issues as long as the historical amnesia is not resolved. So the African proverb, proverb or concept of Sankofa, right, says you got to see where you've been to know where you're going. 
right? And so even if it's in small groups, um, there is a continual need, I think, to push against the, um, the act of forgetting, the forgetting that started with, you know, the enlightenment and colonization, but that forgetting didn't stop then, right? It has continued over the years that um, we, that this society and people in power forget, right? Forget um, what we're accountable to, forget what matters, forget key historical events that happen. So I think, but, but while our minds can forget, the dissonance is that our bodies remember, right? And that's also what trauma teaches us too, right? So we need to heal that split, that split between, you know, the Western society says, you know, it's head above all else. It's almost like I think of the par- the paradigm of individualism as tied to kind of like, I think, therefore I am as well, like the Descartes, Descartian split, whatever you call that, where it's almost like that social hierarchy is mirrored in our bodies, where the mind is like this colonial master that is dominating and oppressing all parts of the self, right? So I think we have to have a collective healing process where we're actively remembering um, ourselves, our cultures, our languages, our original ways of being, um, the harms that have happened and really sit with that. And I think that's a process that can bring about more coherency when our body can recognize like what I'm feeling is real, right? They're saying that I'm supposed to be happy because I got these 10 degrees and I make six figures, but I feel like shit and I don't know who I am and I got to drink every day, right? So we got to, and all of that keeps us let me make the connection. It keeps us cogs in the system where we continue business as usual that is hurting us and killing us, right? And then, but we're suffering and our children are suffering. So I think that's something that needs to happen um, collectively and individually. And I think that's going to be my answer to everything is that it's a collective and an individual process, but um, healing that split where we're able to sit with and recognize the impacts that this has on our bodies, our families, our relationships, learn to feel again and trust our feelings, trust our bodies. Your body's going to, your body is the most decolonial revolutionary element you have. Your body's going to say, fuck that job. You need to sit with your child, right? Or you need to cry. You need to heal your wounds your body's going to actually disrupt. If we learn how to listen to it, it will disrupt these processes. And when we're able to um, heal individually, and I think collectively, I think there's a lot of amending that needs to happen and atoning um, for harms that have, you know, every single group has has a story and listening to each other's stories, feeling it. I think that can dispel Um, to me, it feels like a spell that we're under too, if I can use that, right? Because most people will say, yeah, that sucks. That doesn't work. But then we get up, get in our cars, go to work and repeat that shit, right? And so it also has sort of an inertia. That's why we use the systems um, language because systems don't need individuals fully, right? They can function on their own. You just replace the cogs in the wheel. And so I think we need to have a process of healing so that not only we remember we, who we are, 
but we regain the resources to act on it. We have to call those resources back. All the resources we're giving that props up capitalism, props up white supremacy, props up individualism. We need to call that back to ourselves. If we don't rest, if we don't heal, if we don't feel, right? And we won't be able to actually do what needs to be done, which is turn to our neighbor and say, how the fuck do we get out of this? What you need? You know, let's start cooking for each other. Let's start sitting together. Let's start listening to each other's. And then all of those micro moments and actions, um, this is how communities are actually able to rise up and exercise power against entities like corporations and governments that are hurting them, right? We think about political action and like, you know, people need to stand up, people need to fight back, and they do. We do, right? But I think in the in the U.S. context, it's so hard because of the individualism. Like, why is it in Latin America and these other places that people are able to have these different kinds of resistance moves that we can't have here? It's because we're in the belly of the beast. And the micro, I would say micro-knowledges, have been decimated for so long, right? You can't build a resistance movement, you know, in your community if you don't even know who people are and y'all don't trust each other, let alone like each other, right? So the process of very simple, you know, when I was in Oaxaca in 20, 2015, I'm um, doing a retreat with a Zapotec elder and we asked her and she's, um, in her, her 80s, been doing midwifery and collective healing work um, as an indigenous healer all of her life. And we asked her, you know, before we go back to the States, what, what should we do? And she said, you need to remember your values. You need to rebuild the fabric of your community and what it means to even be a human. She's like, do you know your neighbors, right? Cook food together, help each other out. And it really is, and I think, if you talk to people now, I mean, I think there are some people who are like, okay, yeah, that's cool or whatever. Um, but also a lot of people, even in political circles, might not understand why that matters. They might see it as separate. Like, who cares? We need to get what matters. We need to get the voting booths. We need to do X, Y, and Z. But that's why those kind of movements keep falling apart <laughs> and not sustaining or giving the change that we need. Because at the core level, um, we're still very fragmented. From, from a daily life that centers care, care for ourselves, care for people, for one another, and a deep understanding that when I care for you, I care for myself. That is not separate. That is one in the same. And that deep interdependence, and it all goes back to land, because when you work and live closely on the land, the land also teaches you that. And that's one of the things that we've also been really separated from. I was thinking about earlier, like what to talk about today. And I'm like, it's everywhere in our society. So like, you know, you're wearing a shirt, right? You go to Marshall's or whatever, you buy a shirt, you see the cashier who checks you out and you go home. We never see the probably millions of peoples and beings and processes that went into this one shirt. Right. We don't see um, the workers. We don't see the plant fibers that have to be washed and processed and taken apart. We don't see the farmers who had to um, toil on that land and get to know and understand that land deeply for those fibers to grow. Right. So there's a huge 
chain of interconnected processes that are actually hidden from us in this society so that you can live in a lie that I get in my car and I go to work and it's just me and the people that live in my house. That's a lie. It has never been true. Every, you can look at any micro object in your home. And, and this is actually a meditation that Thich Nhat Hanh recommends in his, um, in his, he's also one of my teachers, beautiful uh, meditation teacher, that you meditate mindfully and you actually think about like a cloud or anything in nature and think about every single process that, that allowed that to come into being that then brought the water that came to you. Right? And this is the indigenous knowing that we've lost. And I believe that this active forgetting that we live in that's reinforced in every single part of our culture is why things stay the same and why we find it so hard to collectively care because we don't see why it matters. You never see any other, other people that sustain your life and they don't see you. But we sustain each other. And I guess I'll end with a quote that comes from an activist that I don't remember which one it is because I read too much stuff and I don't remember which one. But the idea, it might be Miriam Kaba who said, um, we take care of us. We take care of us. Right. As we continue, this society doesn't like any. It's going to stop anytime soon. And it's a death path. It's a death march that our leaders are driving us down. Right. That they're increasing extraction of fuel they're increasing all these things that are actually bringing death to this this planet right and as that continues on everyday people like us are more and more um, vulnerable but the opportunity in that is to remember that we take care of us and to ramp up those systems and i think everything that two things that if you want to take away from today that you can do is do that meditation. Think about where everything in your life comes from and how you're connected to it, right? And secondly, turn to the people around you. What do they need? Who's most vulnerable in my sphere? How do I show up for them? When was the last time I called my grandma? When was the last time I spoke to the elders on my street? Whose trash needs taken out? You know, just those everyday practices, I think, can help to tune our minds to a greater awareness of collective care. And its fullest expression would be us, I think, exercising um, political power to turn our nation towards the values that actually matter. Who gives a fuck about oil or money? We need food, water, health, and we need each other. I think that's the perfect place to stop <laughs> and uh, close out. I appreciate you, Candace, so much for coming and truth telling today. And uh, I do think the takeaway is really something that's really grounded in the Paces movement, which is that healing happens in the community. And mm -hmm. definitely that um, relationship is, is where healing happens as well. Our resilience is, lies in our relationships and our healing happens in community. Thank you so much for joining us today and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.